Before we get started on this episode, I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who picked up a copy of the new edition of Haunted St. Louis. A little behind the scenes here, we're actually recording this on the day after the book came out. It was released on Friday the 13th, and it was really great to see a lot of the uh, podcast promo code in there for people who are listeners to the show. Uh, So if you aren't familiar with that, uh, just put podcast into the promo code when you check out, and you'll actually get 10% off the price of the book, and you can get... a really a deep dive into a lot of the stories that we've been talking about on the podcast this season. So anyway, thanks again to everyone who picked up a copy. And uh, if you haven't gotten one yet, we hope you will. Thanks. In 1929, Gerald Holland wrote in American Mercury magazine, whatever odium may be attached to beer in other parts of the Republic, its status in St. Louis is as firmly grounded as James Eads' span across the Mississippi. Beer made St. Louis. And he was right. Beer was indeed the lifeblood of St. Louis, and empires rose and fell because of the public's taste for a well-crafted brew. The Lemp family came to prominence in the middle 1800s as one of the premier brewing families of St. Louis. For years, they were the fiercest rival of Anheuser-Busch and the first makers of lager beer in the Midwest. But today, they're largely forgotten as actual people. They're more remembered for the mansion they built than for the beer they once brewed. They have been reduced to roles as spooky characters in a horror story rather than as the living, breathing personalities that shaped the history of the city. The history of the Lemp family is a true American tragedy, one of triumph over opposition, hard work, perseverance, genius and madness, eccentricity and passion, horror, death, and suicide. It was played out against the backdrop of America's changing landscape of the late 1800s and early 1900s. It's also the story of the beer industry in St. Louis, the German immigrant experience, and a riveting look at the lives and deaths of those for whom money truly was no object. In 1926, author F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, let me tell you about the very rich. They're different from you and me. Fitzgerald may not have been writing about the Limp family, but he could have been. The Limps were very different from you and me. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. 
This is the second installment in our series within a series about the history and hauntings of the Limp family of St. Louis. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend that you go back to episode 19 and start the series there. It serves as an introduction to the Limp family and their importance in St. Louis history. This episode will take a closer look at the rise of the Limp Empire, as well as the mysterious caves that exist beneath the city of St. Louis. Those caves, particularly the cave once owned by the Limp Brewery, represent one of the most unusual elements of the family story. So keep listening, because things are going to get weird. By the 1870s, William Limp was already on his way to making the Limp Brewery into the biggest and best in St. Louis. After the death of his father, Adam, William had taken over the reins of the company and immediately began expanding the business in ways that his father never could have imagined. Architects and builders were hired and they were soon hard at work, turning William's dreams into brick and mortar. The new Limp Brewery was unlike any other brewing operation in St. Louis at the time. The main buildings covered an entire city block, but it was the brewing plant itself that made the Limp Factory the envy of every other brewer in the city. The brewery had three stories at ground level, with three stories underground that made up the lagering cellars. On the brewery's first floor was a wash house where the empty containers were cleaned before being refilled with Limp beer. There was also an enormous beer kettle with a capacity of 150 barrels per day. As the company grew into the late 19th century, many additional kettles were installed to maximize production. On the second floor was the room for hops, flower clusters that are used as a flavoring and stability agent for beer. They're what gives beer its bitter, tangy taste. German beer makers of the 19th century used hops extensively in their brewing. They balanced the sweetness of the malt with bitterness and created flavors and smells that ales of the time didn't have. In addition, beer made with hops was less inclined to spoil. Also on the brewery's second floor was the dining hall and a large room that was used as an employee dormitory for single men. It was a Spartan arrangement. Each man was assigned a cot and a wardrobe where he could keep his work clothes and personal items. The rising heat from the brew kettles made it brutally hot in the summer, but it was free, which made it appealing to many of the young men who didn't have families. The third floor held the brewery's cooling room. In the days before artificial refrigeration, the beer drained into vast sheet iron pans over which currents of air blew from windows on both sides of the room. Once cool, it was set onto the fermenting tubs. Two elevators were used to move the casks and kegs between floors for cleaning, filling, receiving, and shipping. The brewery's malt house was a massive building. It was one of the most advanced in the city. It stood three stories tall and also had three underground cellars. Each season, workers prepared about 125,000 bushels of malt from the best Canadian barley. Well, what is malting, you might ask? Well, it's a process applied to cereal grains like barley, in which the grains are made to germinate while soaking in water. The germinating is then halted by drying them with hot air. Malting grains develops enzymes that are required to modify the grain starches into sugars and developing other enzymes that can be used by yeast. The limps used barley for malting because of its high enzyme content. Well, in other words, it's not malt liquor with all the work with grains that has to go into it. It's what made limp beer taste good and the reason it became so popular, first in St. Louis and later across the country. 
three grain elevators, one each for barley, sprouted barley, and malt, move the grains to different parts of the building during the brewing process. The brewery's cleaning and separating machines were the largest in St. Louis, capable of processing up to 1,000 bushels per hour. The barrel-making shop, barrels which would be filled with beer and shipped out, was across the street from the brewery. To the north was the Limp Stables, where hundreds of horses used for beer deliveries were kept and cared for. Each building in the brewery complex was designed to look the same, in an Italian Renaissance style that featured arched windows and brick cornices. It eventually grew to cover five city blocks. After the initial expansion of the 1870s, it was ranked as one of the largest in the country. But William was not content with that. New construction and renovations continued on an almost daily basis, and the brewery became a marvel of modern technology and a showplace of industrial design. William's fascination with mechanics and new innovations were apparent in the facility's expansion. At the time, power was provided by a single 75-horsepower engine, which, while small today, was far beyond the capabilities of engines owned by his competitors. The brewery had been designed to be fireproof, with underground boilers that were located away from the main building. Since boilers were the main cause of fire in those days, having a separate boiler room was essential to safe operations. Steam pumps heated the offices and supplied hot water for the brewing process and throughout the plant, as well as for the nearby homes of William's stepmother, Louise, and the home of his father-in-law, Jacob Feichert. The next great innovation to the brewery came in 1877 when beer began to be sold in bottles. This new development was quickly adopted by William Lemp. Now he knew he had a way to ship his beer all over the world. A few years before, only European brewers bottled their own beer. In America, bottling was a separate, independent industry that was handled by companies under contract by the brewers. But after Anheuser-Busch introduced a pasteurization process for beer, making it more stable and easier to transport, every brewery wanted to bottle its own, and for good reason. The retailing of draft beer was a costly and cumbersome operation because in a market the size of St. Louis, hundreds of horses, stables, wagons, and delivery men had to be paid and maintained for regular deliveries. Bottled beer, on the other hand, could be delivered anywhere at a fraction of the cost. This opened new markets for beer in homes, restaurants, hotels, and in distant places that brewers never dreamed of in the past. Initially, the bottling process was pretty crude. It was done by workers who used a hose from a barrel to fill each bottle. After it was filled, the pressing device inserted a cork in the bottle and then wired it shut. After the beer was pasteurized, labels were glued on the bottle and the neck was wrapped in foil. Limp beer was advertised as bottled in the brewery, and when the bottling plant opened, it had a capacity of 12,000 bottles a day. It was soon exceeding even that amount. Williams' latest innovations allowed the brewery to enjoy greater success than ever before. He had taken a fairly lucrative neighborhood brewery and turned it into one of the largest and most modern operations in America. In 1877, the Limp Brewery was the largest in St. Louis and was number 19 in the country. In comparison, that same year, Anheuser-Busch, which was just starting to become a serious competitor, was ranked at number 32. The Limp Brewery, with its towering buildings and looming smokestacks, was a commanding presence on St. Louis's south side. But as impressive as the brewery was above ground, it was no less amazing below, where the Limp's lagering cellars plunged three more stories before leading into natural caves that went deeper into the earth. The upper cellars, which were accessible through the brewery's basement, were used to store beer that was undergoing fermentation. The lower cellars, divided into about 20 different chambers, were used for lagering beer. Depending on the time of year, the cellars could contain as many as 50,000 barrels of beer that were stored in huge casks that held between 30 and 60 barrels each. 
The man-made cellars were connected to a vast natural cave that was Adam Limp's original spot for lagering beer. The entire underground area was kept at a constant year-round temperature of between 35 and 40 degrees, using vents from the brewery's ice houses, which held as much as 10,000 tons of ice. There were four additional ice houses on the Mississippi River levee in South St. Louis. Workmen cut blocks of ice from the river each winter, which was then shipped to the brewery where it was used to keep beer cool through the humid summer months. But by the late 1870s, though, they would no longer be needed. It was at that time that the next great innovation in the brewing industry came along, artificial refrigeration. From its earliest days, William Limp had been a supporter of experiments in mechanical refrigeration. He knew that it would offer great advantages, and William, along with other forward-thinking brewers, gave the inventors of artificial cooling devices the opportunity to try out their newfangled machines, often investing in their failed prototypes. Eventually, though, refrigeration units developed to the point that the needs of brewers could be served and allowed them to meet the always increasing needs of their customers. William was eager to add artificial refrigeration to his brewery, and in 1878, he installed the very first refrigeration machine in American brewing history. A new era in limp brewing had just begun. of cooling units at the Limp Brewery permanently ended the need for the lagering caves that were located under the brewery. It was the end of an era since the brewery would not even have been located where it was if not for Adam Limp's purchase of a cave in the middle 19th century. But as it turned out, this was not the end of that cave story. It would still have a couple of other tales to tell before its apparent demise. You see, one of the strangest and most mysterious elements of St. Louis may not actually be its ghosts. It's the huge and complex natural system of caves that exists beneath the city. Although most residents don't realize it, there's no other city on earth that has as many caves beneath its streets, sidewalks, homes, and buildings. While most of them have been abandoned and closed off, they have not been forgotten. Stories of their strange history and their hauntings are still told today. Caves were man's earliest storage cellars. Their natural coolness helped keep food from spoiling. They were the perfect lagering cellars for St. Louis brewers in the 1840s. Adam Limp, who introduced lager beer to thirsty St. Louisans, was the first German brewer to take advantage of the city's natural caves. He would not be the last. The brewers altered the caves to suit their purposes. They constructed stone arches and brick ceilings to prevent water from seeping in, and they paved the caves' uneven floors. They built staircases and walkways and installed massive wooden kegs where their beer could be aged. Many of the brewers found that the caves were expensive to open and renovate, so they often did double duty. Beer could be stored in the caves, but they would also make a great place to serve beer, too. Many beer gardens and taverns were located in St. Louis caves. They became popular drinking establishments and night spots, especially in the summer, when a cave offered a cool respite from the heat. 
One of the first cave attractions in the city was Urig's Cave, which was opened by Andrew and Franz Urig in the 1850s. They had started their Camp Springs Brewery in 1839, but a piece of land with a cave beneath it became available between Locust Street and Washington Avenue, and they bought it. The brothers had been losing money trying to lager their beer with river ice for years, and this seemed to be the answer to their prayers. The Urigs went to work on the cave. It was naturally only about 170 feet deep, so they dug to make it deeper. They also built brick walls and high arch ceilings to keep water from seeping in. As work progressed, they realized the cave was actually connected to several other small caverns. This meant more digging and more excavation, but it paid off. They ended up spending an estimated $100,000 to connect all the caves and install a narrow gauge railroad that would transport their beer from the brewery to the cave. Once the work was completed, they decided to open it for business, not just for storage, but as a place to serve their beer. The cave entrance was located in a shady grove of trees, only a short buggy ride from downtown, and this made the Urigs a popular spot for people to come and listen to music and have a glass of cold beer. Tables were arranged in one of the larger cave rooms and band concerts were held, along with dining and dancing. Tours were even conducted in the cave and the loggering rooms. Urigs was not the first cave to be used as a beer garden, but its popularity started the trend and it became known as the original St. Louis Beer Garden. It was only the Civil War that slowed them down. Entertainment was suspended for four long years, and when it was over, they sold the cave to Chris Nunst, but he was never as successful with it. By then, the beer garden had lost some of its luster, so he added a small theater and turned it into an opera house. In 1884, he sold the cave to saloon keeper Thomas McNeary, who expanded on the theater idea and turned the cave into a vaudeville house. McNeary and his brothers owned the cave during its time of greatest popularity and attracted many well-known entertainers to their stage. They even installed the first electric lights to ever be used at a St. Louis night spot. During its peak, the cave boasted an audience of up to 3,000 people each night. They came to drink, enjoy music, see plays, and comic operas. But the glory days only lasted for four years. In 1888, McNary lost his liquor license and the theater was closed. It remained abandoned until 1900 when there was a short-lived attempt to restore its theater. From 1903 to 1908, the cave was used at different times as a roller skating rink, a bowling alley, and even a mushroom farm. None of them lasted for long. Finally, McNary gave up and offered a 90-year lease to a group called the Businessmen's League, who built an auditorium that covered the cave, beer garden, and much of the surrounding area. Their plan was to create a facility that would host sporting events, theatrical performances, and more. They broke ground in 1908, and they called it the St. Louis Coliseum. The Coliseum had its grand opening in 1909 when famed evangelist Gypsy Smith began a series of revival meetings in the city. Smith attracted more than 10,000 people each night and paved the way for everything that followed, from circuses to the Veiled Prophet Ball. Hundreds of popular performers played there, including Enrico Caruso and many others. Bill Tilden put on tennis exhibitions and Johnny Tarzan Weismuller swam in what was then the world's largest swimming pool. In 1916, the Democratic National Convention was held in the building, but one of the most popular events was the 1927 wrestling match between Joe Strecker and Ed Strangler Lewis. The Coliseum was completely sold out and the brutal match lasted until the early morning hours, with Strangler Lewis eventually emerging as the winner. Despite all this, the Coliseum was never a financial success. As early as 1914, it was cited for back taxes and for being behind with rent. Ownership reverted back to the McNary estate. Tom McNary had died in 1893, and the family held it until 1925 when it was purchased by a New York group that planned to renovate it. 
They tried to drum up new interest in the place with the addition of that giant swimming pool and other things, but by then it was almost too late. The construction of the St. Louis Arena in 1929 and the Keele Auditorium in 1934 drew most of the big events away from the Coliseum. To make matters worse, the Coliseum had no easily accessible parking nearby. It had been built at a time when few people had automobiles. Well, that of course had changed by the late 1930s. The last event held at the Coliseum was a wrestling match in 1939. During World War II, it was used as a storage spot for new automobiles that had been frozen by government regulations at the beginning of the war. The building then sat empty for three years. In 1953, it was condemned by the city as unsafe, and later that same year, the St. Louis Coliseum was demolished. While it was being torn down, historians got one last look at Urich's cave, still hidden away underneath that building. Many of the old passageways remained, along with the man-made brickwork and the natural spring. New construction destroyed all remaining traces of Urich's cave. It was a place where St. Louis history had been made, with only memories left as reminders of days gone by. Urich's Cave was not the only beer garden located in a St. Louis cave, and theirs was far from the only brewery that took advantage of the cave's natural coolness for lagering. Interestingly, though, many breweries actually used different parts of the same caves for their operations, never realizing they were connected. One cave was once used by 14 different breweries, all at the same time, never knowing they were not the only occupant. One brewer, Excelsior Brewery, set up operations in a cave in 1880. They unknowingly shared the space with Franklin Brewery, which had started just south on Market Street in 1855. Both breweries were cleared to make room for Union Station in 1894, but by then, the companies were long out of business and the cave they had used for lagering had been forgotten. But it didn't stay forgotten. You see, in 1933, the city made plans to widen Market Street, and as engineers started their excavations, they broke into the abandoned cave. Surveyors entered the caverns and found the remains of an old plant, as well as the second level of the cave that contained wooden fermenting tanks. They discovered masonry walls and brick columns, and at one end of a tunnel, found an abandoned mushroom bed. Beneath this level, they entered a deep cellar that was now only accessible by a shaky ladder. The large subcellar had vaulted arches and huge wooden chambers and vats for beer that were still intact. After the discovery of this old-time novelty, the cave was sealed up again and forgotten. Well, for a few more years. In 1955, redevelopment work was started along Market Street and the cave was discovered yet again. Unfortunately, this latest discovery occurred when a portion of the cave collapsed, opening a large pit in the middle of the street. Engineers tried to fill it in, but it was 25 feet deep. It ended up taking 4,000 cubic yards of dirt and stone to fill in the collapsed area. A year later, a sidewalk collapsed in front of the post office, opening up to the same cave. This time, government engineers had to drive steel beams into the floor of the cave so the sidewalk could be supported. Since then, the supports have managed to hold, but based on the past, it seems only a matter of time before this forgotten cave demands to be remembered once again. So keep that in mind when you're walking in downtown St. Louis. There just might be, and probably is, a cave underneath your feet. One of the most famous caves in the city is one that few living St. Louisans have ever seen. Now inaccessible, it's been filled with water for decades, English Cave was a longtime legend in the city. It was regarded as haunted, literally, when it was discovered, and it allegedly brought bad luck and misfortune to every person who ever owned it. There was a legend that explained both the haunting and the bad luck curse attached to the cave. According to the story, which honestly was probably cooked up by a newspaper reporter in the 1800s, 
There was a young Native American woman who lived in the region before the French settlers arrived. She fell in love with a young man who lived in her village, and while he loved her in return, they could not be together. The young woman had already been promised in marriage to the tribe's war chief, a violent and disagreeable man. Unable to think of her in the arms of the war chief, the man convinced the young woman to run away with him. When it was discovered the two were missing, the war chief was enraged and gathered his warriors to chase them down. The two lovers found refuge in the cave and waited there for danger to pass. They were tracked to the cave, though, and the warriors waited outside, demanding that the woman be turned over to them. But they refused to surrender, and they hid in the cave until they starved to death. Years later, after St. Louis was settled, this story was allegedly told by the Native Americans who lived in the area, and they even offered proof in the form of two skeletons that had been left behind in the cave. Naturally, stories spread of the ghostly sounds of weeping and crying that came from the cave at night, and the eerie voices that spoke in Native dialect that were heard echoing in the darkness. The cave was haunted. Everyone who lived in the neighborhood swore. While the legend of the curse was soon followed by tales of spirits, whether the curse was real or not, the cave's owners definitely had a run of bad luck. The cave's namesake, Ezra O. English, was the first unlucky owner of the place. In 1826, he built a small ale brewery next to the cave, just east of the St. Louis Commons, which later became Benton Park. He later set up a brewery inside of the cave itself, becoming the first St. Louisan to take advantage of the cave as a commercial property. English did little to improve the cave's interior, although he did build a door that allowed access to the cave and carved stone steps down to the ale room for customers who wanted to sample cool drinks on hot summer days. In 1839, Ezra took on a partner, a local businessman named Isaac McCobes. They began calling the operation the St. Louis Brewery, and it prospered for a time as a subterranean beer garden and resort. And while this was going on, the business gained a new neighbor, a cemetery. The city had converted the commons next door into a public burial ground. Space in the local cemeteries had run out due to the cholera epidemics that had killed so many people. Renovations on the cave were completed in 1849, and Ezra and Isaac renamed the place Mammoth Cave and Park, perhaps borrowing the name from the famous cave in Kentucky, which was then just starting to attract visitors from all around the country. The two St. Louis men did their fair share to attract visitors to the local Mammoth Cave. They landscaped gardens around the property and hired a family of vocalists to entertain at the cave on Sundays. Later, they constructed a sail swing, arranged hot air balloon rides, and hired a military brass band to play full time. They spent a lot of money to make sure their attraction was the most popular recreation experience in St. Louis. And it was a disaster. When one thinks of 1849 in St. Louis, most don't think about beer gardens and hot air balloons. Most think of tragedy. They called it the year of misfortune. There were cholera epidemics in 1849, killing thousands, and the great St. Louis fire, which devastated the riverfront. No one had the time nor money to devote to the attractions offered at Mammoth Cave. In less than two years, Isaac quit the business. Ezra followed a few years later and faded out of St. Louis history. There's no record about what happened at the cave during this period of abandonment. But it was unlucky, that's for sure. <clears throat> so you see where this is going. A few years later, the city passed an ordinance for the removal of all the bodies from the cemetery that had been created from the commons. The remains were to be taken to the quarantine burial grounds located some distance south of Jefferson Barracks. After all of the bodies were exhumed and moved, or were they, listen to episode 18 of the podcast, the commons was turned into a public park in 1866. It was named after Thomas Hart Benton and Mammoth Cave was forgotten after a time. 
The cave, now known as English Cave, was resurrected in 1887 by two businessmen as a commercial mushroom farm. F.K. Benz and George Shaper seemed to have everything going for them, plenty of money and great ideas, and they hoped to fare better than their predecessors did in the cave business. However, they were constantly reminded of how the cave had failed the last owners. Even a newspaper article that was published to announce their new venture wished them well, quote, in spite of the history and failure that has hung around the place, unquote. The operation was soon in full swing and the men tended their crop by the light of kerosene lanterns. Things were successful at first. They developed a regular customer base that paid 75 cents a pound for mushrooms. But then the business went bust. They were closed just after two years and the cave was abandoned once again. The next unlucky occupant was Paul Wack Wine Company, which was widely acclaimed for the variety of wines that it offered. But great wines or not, they didn't last much longer than the mushroom farm. It opened in 1897 and didn't even last for a year. The winery was the last company to use the cave for commercial reasons, but its bad luck story wasn't quite over yet. In the early 1900s, a St. Louis Park Commissioner proposed reopening a portion of the cave as an attraction at Benton Park. He suggested adding an ornamental entrance to the cave, believing that it would attract World's Fair visitors, as well as travelers from across the country. There was, he said, no other city that could boast such a unique attraction in one of their public parks. The idea never really got off the ground, and the cave was forgotten again, this time for six decades. In the 1960s, a local spelunking group also proposed reopening the cave as part of Benton Park. Surveys had shown there was a large cave complex under the park with as many as 10 rooms and passageways. They tried to interest two different St. Louis mayors as well as the city park department in their plan, but no one was interested. They refused to give up easily, however. The biggest problem they faced in the 60s was trying to find a way back into the cave. The original entrance had been closed off, but thanks to newspaper articles written about their proposal, many older residents of the area recalled their own memories of the cave. Everyone seemed to remember getting into the cave in a different spot, but the cavers were determined to find an entrance. They checked abandoned buildings and sheds and heard about a basement entrance from a house near the park. When they arrived, they found the house had been torn down. They asked questions, knocked on doors, but found nothing. Eventually, they gave up. There was seemingly no way into the cave. Four decades later, I found out that all their searching may have been for nothing. The cave is still there, but it's filled with water. There's no way the cave could ever be opened again. So does this mean the curse of English cave is finally over? Since brewery owners and cave visitors will no longer be able to disturb the rest of the Native American woman and her lover, will they finally be able to rest in peace? Perhaps now they can spend eternity in the damp and murky darkness of the cave and no longer be bothered by trespassers from the world above. And here we return to the story of the Limps and their own brewery cave. As it happened, it was the only famous St. Louis cave that has endured into modern times. It actually became a popular tourist spot before closing in the early 1960s. By then it was known as Cherokee Cave, but this was originally the same cave that was owned by Adam Limp when he first sought an underground chamber in which to lager his beer. There is no question that Cherokee Cave has the most unique history of any cave in the city. It's a story of beer, 
madness, tourist traps, and ghosts. Adam Limp began using the cave in 1845 when workmen expanded the natural confines of the cavern and fitted it for use in the brewing industry. A reporter for the Missouri Republican newspaper wrote that Limp's cave had three separate chambers and that each one of them contained large casks that could hold 20 to 30 barrels of beer. The lagering cellars were open for use within a few months, but Limp soon expanded them to store more than 3,000 barrels of beer at a time. The beer cellars had been created by simply clearing out the natural underground river channels that had been carved from the limestone. They were divided off using masonry and brick to create artificial rooms. During the early days of the brewery's history, Adam was still brewing beer on 2nd Street and taking it by wagon to the cave for the lagering period. Williams Brewery on the surface above the cave was still years away at that time. Around 1850, at the same time the Limp Brewery was beginning to grow, a fur trader named Henry Chatillon built a house on a piece of property that adjoined Adam's parcel on the crest of Arsenal Hill on 13th Street. In 1856, Dr. Nicholas Deminal purchased the land and expanded the simple farmhouse on the property. He added several rooms and a magnificent portico that faced eastward overlooking a large garden and below that, the Mississippi River. The Greek Revival Mansion became a favorite landmark for steamboat pilots browning the curve in the river at the time. In 1865, Deminal leased a southwest corner of the property to the Minnehaha Brewery, which built a small two-story wood frame brewing house on the site. For several years, Deminal had used a cave beneath his house to store perishable goods, and he decided to lease a portion of the cave to the owners of the brewery. Like Adam Limp, they planned to use the cavern to lager beer. They made a number of improvements to the cave, but the company went out of business two years later, unable to survive the economic downturn that followed the Civil War. During the two years that the Minnehaha Brewery was in business, the owners used sections of the cave that the Limps were also using. A wall had been constructed between the two operations, dividing the space between where Deminal's property ended and the Limps began. The Limp family was on good terms with Dr. Deminal, though. When William began renovating the house down the block for his own family, an arrangement was made to run pipelines from the brewery complex through Deminal's cave. This furnished the Limp Mansion, along with Deminal's house, with hot and cold running water. The cave was used for brewery operations until the 1870s, when artificial refrigeration was installed. After that, the cave no longer played a major role in the production of beer. Instead, it was turned into an entertainment complex of sorts for the Limp family. There was an entrance to the cave in the basement of the mansion. To reach it, the Limps traveled by way of a quarried shaft that linked with the cave. From there, they could enter the lagering cellars of the brewery. William Limp used this route to go back and forth from the mansion to his brewery office during inclement weather. One of the cave's chambers was used as a ballroom, where the limps occasionally held parties. Another larger chamber was converted into a combination auditorium and theater. Across one end of the space, imitation cave walls were constructed using plaster and wire screen. The walls were intended to create backstage storage space. Ironically, workmen had to tear out all the natural features of the cave to create the fake cave walls. Crude floodlights were used to illuminate the stage. The Limps were believed to have hired actors to put on private performances there. East of the theater was another Limp family innovation. Just below the intersection of Cherokee Street and Deminal Place was a large concrete-lined pool that had been a reservoir back in the days of underground lagering. In other words, it was a place for the water to go when the ice melted in the summertime. Legends say the Limps converted it into a swimming pool by piping in hot water from the brewery's boiler house. After Prohibition, the caves were abandoned and the entrances sealed shut. However, this was not the end for what had been the Minnehaha portion of the cave. 
In November 1946, a pharmaceutical manufacturer named Lee Hess bought the Minnehaha part of the cave, as well as the old Deminal house and grounds. He then began developing the cave as a tourist attraction. He erected a museum building in a parking lot to serve what he dubbed Cherokee Cave. The cave became a popular tourist stop, but not without considerable work and money. Hess developed almost an obsession with the cave and nearly lost his entire fortune trying to develop it. He moved into the sprawling Deminal house, but only lived in two of the rooms. Hess and his wife shared one room, and Albert Hoffman, who managed the cave for Hess, lived in the other. In April 1950, Cherokee Cave was open to the public. Visitors were able to stroll along on a tour that took them to Cherokee Lake, the Petrified Falls, and the famed Spaghetti Room, where slender cave formations hung down from the ceiling like strands of pasta. The cave remained open until 1960. A year later, it was purchased from Hess by the Missouri Highway Department, which had plans to demolish the museum and close the cave to make room for Interstate 55. The cave was lost, but Hess battled into the end of his life to keep the state from destroying the Deminal Mansion. Eventually, he succeeded. The cave museum and the entrance that Hess created were demolished in 1964. Today, the only reminder of this unique place is a short street near Broadway and Cherokee called Cave Street. The Deminal Mansion became a historic site and museum. For many years after the highway tore through this historic portion of the city, it was believed that Cherokee Cave had been filled in and completely destroyed. This was later discovered to be incorrect. Portions of the cave still exist today, and I can tell you that for a fact, I've seen it. There are also the ghost stories, tales that are not confined to the nearby Limp Mansion. In recent years, the brewery above the cave was occasionally used as a Halloween haunted attraction. There were some nights when the customers there got a little more than they bargained for. On at least one occasion, the attraction was reportedly closed after a staff member spotted someone in an off-limits area that led down to the cave entrance. The customers were stopped at the door while employees searched for the wandering visitor. After a thorough search, however, no one was ever found. Whoever this trespasser may have been, he'd vanished. At other times, apparitions were heard rather than seen. One staff member who decided to go down into the cave one night claimed to hear the sound of hard-soled shoes walking behind him in some of the abandoned passageways. Unnerved, he began walking faster, only to have the mysterious footsteps keep pace with him. Thinking it was only his imagination or a cave echo playing tricks on him, he stopped abruptly, fully expecting the tapping of the shoes to also stop. Instead, they continued for several more steps before also coming to a halt. Now, he'd been scared before, now he was terrified. Summoning his courage, he turned and shined his flashlight down the passage behind him. No one was there. Needless to say, he quickly left the cave. Now, I've always been a big fan of caves. I never missed the chance to visit commercial caves while traveling around the country. And in years past, when I was much younger and a lot more flexible, I did a lot of intense cave exploring in marked and unmarked caves across the Midwest. I'd always wanted to see the Limp Caverns and Cherokee Cave, but figured they were closed and forgotten, likely for all time. In the spring of 2003, though, I got the chance to not only see the cave, but to tour the remnants of the old brewery, too. I described that night in my book, Suicide and Spirits, so for our purposes here, I'll talk just about my trip into the cave. Our path that night took us down into the underground portions of the brewery and into the gigantic rooms with arched ceilings that were designed to add extra support for the massive stone buildings overhead. Leaving those rooms behind, we descended through a doorway, traveled along several passages, and then went down a long curved staircase to the brewery's sub-basement. Now this put us at the same level as the first portion of the cave. And it was through this level that the limps would ascend to the brewery as they walked to work in the mornings using the cave to travel from the mansion to their offices. 
It was here that William Limp had walked as he began his descent into depression and madness that would eventually claim his life. He became so withdrawn that he refused to appear in public and instead chose those subterranean passages to travel to the brewery each day. With only the light from flashlights, I could see that this part of the old brewery was well on its way to being reclaimed by the cave from which it had been carved. The floors were covered with mud and were slippery in spots with moss and algae. Water dripped from the walls and ceilings. The old bricks were slowly crumbling from decades of dampness and moisture. We left the finished areas of the cave with the stone floors and brick-lined walls and entered a passageway that took us into the natural cave beyond. To reach this section, we passed through a long, damp corridor that was littered with fallen stone, mud, and debris from the old days of the brewery. Above our heads were metal brackets and chains that had once been part of a conveyor belt that transported blocks of ice into the lagering vaults. A motor that at one time had powered the conveyor belt was still resting on the side of the passageway. We turned left and traveled down a wide tunnel that took us into what was once the limp subterranean theater. Well, it's in ruins today, an eerie and disturbing place. An archway at the rear, which led to another chamber, was one of the only remaining architectural pieces from the limp era. Elsewhere, the plaster scenery that had been painted to look like rocks lay in heaping piles of rubble on the floor. Here and there, patches of garish colors remained on the crumbling faux rocks. Overhead, an old electric light fixture that once illuminated the stage dangled precariously, its bulbs long since shattered. I couldn't help but wonder as I stood there looking around the bleak room that was shrouded in a heavy mist, just how much privacy the limps must have craved. I couldn't imagine descending beneath the damp earth, far underground to this dark chamber, so I could just attend private performances of popular shows with a few select friends. And how much money could the limps have offered to get the actors to put on these bizarre subterranean entertainments? The theater was downright spooky. I would not have been surprised to learn that the ghosts of long-forgotten actors still lingered there, walking a stage that vanished long ago. The theater marked the end of the passage, so we turned back and then continued down the tunnel where the ice chute was located. A short walk took us to the limp's famed swimming pool. That pool was really just a shallow cement basin that was only used for recreational purposes after electric refrigeration was installed in the brewery. Prior to that, it was a reservoir for runoff from the melting ice. By the time I saw it, it was heavily clogged with mud, clay, and rocks that had fallen from the cave ceiling. It now bore little resemblance to any sort of wading pool, and I didn't have to fight an urge to roll up my pant legs and walk on in. Once we traveled past the reservoir, we entered the actual passages of Cherokee Cave. When it had been opened as a show cave, the natural contours of the rock were opened up, and the floor was smoothed out and fitted with curbs on each side of the path to keep most of the water away. These improvements, along with the remains of electrical wiring and light boxes, had been left behind when Lee Hess had been forced to abandon the cave back in 1960. As the trip progressed, the commercial aspects of the cave became more obvious. We saw stone steps that had been carved from the cave floor and metal handrails that had been installed more than 50 years before. As we went deeper into the cave, though, the water that covered the floor became deeper and harder to walk through. To make matters worse, there was some concern about the air quality in the passageway. When we tried checking the air with a flame from a lighter and we watched the flame grow weaker as we walked deeper into the passage, eventually it flickered and went out and we had to turn back. Now I was the last to turn back, feeling this great sense of loss. I wondered if the others had the same sense of the history that we were privileged enough to experience walking where very few people had walked in nearly half a century. This was, I realized, a haunted place, but whether by ghosts or by the passage of time, I was unable to say. 
Our journey back through the labyrinth of cave passages, doorways, staircases, loggering chambers, and brewery corridors took us much less time to complete than it had when we were descending. I was surprised to discover we'd been underground for almost an entire night. I remember walking back down the corridor that led from the cave to the loggering chambers and looking back into the darkness and the mist behind us. I'm not sure what I expected to see or hear. Perhaps the sound of other more ethereal explorers following behind us or the specters of the limp still trudging to the brewery after all these years. I don't know, but I do know that I expected something. I wish I could tell you that I'd had some ghostly experience while exploring the limp's old cave, but unfortunately I can't. The ghosts were certainly there, at least in a figurative sense, because no one can enter the cave and not feel the very tangible spirit of the past, but literally, well, the dead weren't walking that night. But my experiences with the ghosts of the Limp family were still to come. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words, how, how? first cave attractions in the city was Urich's Cave, which was opened by Andrew... <laughs> I can't do this. I, I really want to get Franz right, and I keep saying the wrong thing. Oh, God. Franz and Hans. <laughs> All right. Okay. <clears throat> One of the first cave attractions in the city was Urich's Cave, which was opened by Andrew... <laughs> I almost did it again. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, okay. Caves were man's earliest stores. St- 
<laughs> oh God, I, why can I not get this word? Mm. Okay, I'm gonna have to switch to something else to drink here soon. Well, whatever. Fuck it. It's our thing, right? So, okay. All right. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 20, which is the seventh episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Just how many many episodes is this season going to be? Uh, you know, if you keep adding on to everything we're <laughs> yeah, doing, I do it's... just keep adding. I I sent you a message and go, okay, I know that we said four episodes yeah. of the limps, but now I'm kind of looking at five. So yeah, it, they have grown. Um, and we've and never done more than a two parter, right? I mean, no, so far, this is no, this so is we're jumping from two this to is five. Our longest, and we still have the the exorcism at the end of the season, and yeah. I'm not really clear on how many episodes that's going to be yet. Yep. So. I'm not sure how long the St. Louis season will be, mm-hmm. but I'm going to guess it's going to be Longer. somewhat long. So Some, somebody actually asked there's me. actually a whole bunch of stuff to go after this. And somebody so. asked me today, they said, wait, how long is this season? And I was like, I don't know. Does, it, don't ma- know. does it matter? Does it matter? It doesn't so matter. The, yeah, the no. points don't matter and everything's made up. And like, yeah. It does not matter at yeah, all. it doesn't matter. Uh, so. so who knows? Just stick around. and we'll but, be- So, yeah. So thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, when we get really, tired of St. Louis, we'll move yeah, on. But yeah, yeah. When, but, but we, we're not anywhere near tired of St. Louis quite yet. So, nope. uh, but, but in all seriousness, thanks for listening. Um, because it would really just be two guys sitting here talking to each other <laughs> if no one was listening. So we're glad that you are. But we'd so still do it. We would still do it. And that's the thing. So. But anyway, we, uh, oh, well, except for our live recording, we did that live thing at Dead of Winter. We had a bunch of people to talk to. How weird was that? Oh, so, yeah. I yeah. just kind of phased them out yeah, as if it was yeah. still so, only But us. we're going to be doing it again at the Haunted America Conference in June. Uh, June 22nd, 23rd, we'll be doing, well, and we're not doing, it's not going to be quite the same. So we're not doing like a story with it. We're doing it as, we're, we're wrapping it into our strange stuff yeah you know which is a lot of people's you know experiences that it will be talking so um you'll have a we'll have a lot of guests so to speak on the podcast for that episode yeah but I, no, I'm excited uh, but that'll that. be uh, we'll still be in st louis in june probably oh yeah <laughs> most likely yeah. uh so we'll 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 take a break for that episode and do a a, a very special episode of american hauntings yeah, podcast i'm excited so, i get to bug other people yeah, aside from you a special episode will be you know about like teenage pregnancy drinking that kind of oh i'm sorry i'm thinking of an oh. after school special oh you know, yeah they always, right or a very special episode of blossom that kind of thing blossom you know? so, all right i don't know how we got we somehow we got there we got yeah, to blossom yeah. all right well we we should actually get to that was a very long intro so we should probably yes. get into uh discussing the episode yeah so okay so this episode is still about the limps but it's it's also a lot about the caves that are underneath st louis which i knew almost nothing about and we're gonna dive into those in a minute well and and let me give you some reasoning behind it okay, because yeah. there may be some people who are like why why an episode all about caves um the main thing is the the caves of st louis are so interesting and or to me and i think to a lot of people who don't know much about them and, but it wasn't something that we wanted to devote an entire episode of the podcast to because the, the main thing was that the biggest cave, the, the one we're going to talk about the most, was the Limps Cave, which became Cherokee Cave. Yeah. So that's why we tied it into the, 
the actual limps episode. So if you needed an explanation, you know, so please don't leave us a comment and on, on our review and say, hey, why all this about the, this is why right here. So just so you know. And that disclaimer will do absolutely nothing to <laughs> I know, deter the comments. I know it won't, but but still, we still have to. Okay, yeah. so we're going to dive into the case. But first off, just to get it out of the way, I want to say that I loved the science and the explanation that you went into about the beer. <sighs> and I want to tell the yeah. listeners that if you don't love it, you are lucky because we could talk about beer. We could nerd oh, out gosh. about beer for yeah, hours. We could talk about the beer for And we're hours. not going to. Yeah, I've been known to do that. To, yes. To actually, because people don't understand what lager beer is. And I remember telling, trying to explain to a group of people I was talking to about limp history, what the difference, why, why their beer was so much different than everyone else's and why it was so you know groundbreaking at the time. And I think I spent like a half hour explaining exactly what lager beer was. And I could just watch as eyes glazed yeah, over. Right, yeah. And I thought, I need to stop this. But I couldn't. You I couldn't could. stop. So be be grateful for the fact that I really trimmed that down. And I know I talked a lot about hops and malts and barley and enzymes in, in the, the the meat of the podcast there. But if you knew how much I had cut out... And how much Lisa made me cut out of this, who's sitting here trying to make sure we're not talking about nothing but beer for an hour. Um, if you knew how much I had cut out of that, you, you would be very happy. <laughs> so it's just one of those things. Yeah. It's just I, I find it fascinating. So. Right. And we won't stick on it for too no, long. But I, I, I do want to mention that you mentioned that in, in 1877, the Limp Brewery was the largest in St. Louis and was number 19th in the country. And in comparison, that same year, Anheuser-Busch, uh, was just starting to become a serious competitor. It was ranked at number 32. Right, way behind the And limbs. I think that's a very big deal. And we should, we should mention that because I'm drinking I know, uh, an Anheuser-Busch product. And it's not that it's not a fine product. It's just that it, it's one of those things that I always used to, I often used to open when I would talk about the limps somewhere, I would also often start out by saying, asking how many people had been on the Anheuser-Busch bush brewery tour which is a lot of fun which i highly oh, yeah. recommend it's great if you want to nerd out on how beer's made it's a lot of fun or to if you do. just want a free beer well that too and you also get free beer uh it's it's worth going to but i would always ask how many people had been and you know to get a show of hands and then i would say okay well half of what they told you was a lie because they would always tell you about how anheuser-busch was this number one dominant brewery since at the beginning of its history in st louis and we've already covered that in a previous episode that they were you know, an accident, really, because if it hadn't have been for, you know, Augustus, you know, or, or for Adolf Adolphus Bush, mm -hmm. there would have been no brewery because Anheuser had zero interest in making beer and his beer was awful. That's right. what everyone, even he said, you right. know, so they, but they always want to tell you that they're and I used to like correct them on the tour, which is never popular. You were that guy. Uh, yeah. I was that guy. So I love that's it. never popular. Um, but just, just, for our purposes here, I'm going to stress once again that the Limp Brewery was the number one brewery in St. Louis during its heyday of operations. I mean, that all came to, you know, began to tumble by 1905, mm -hmm. 1906. But prior to that, they were the top brewery. There was no one who could compete with them, yeah. including 
including Anheuser-Busch. And, so, we'll, and we'll talk about that next episode, the kind of yeah, the crumbling of uh, the rise will. and fall we of will. the empire. We really will. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll really get to the fall. This was right. more of the rise. We'll right. get to the fall next time. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so, But basically, to sum it up, the, the limps realized early on that they could use the caves that were pretty unique to St. Louis and everywhere. They could use those caves to keep their beer cold. Um, and there are a ton of caves underneath St. Louis, and they also use them as popular beer gardens. And I had no idea about a lot of these things um well, and, you, uh, yeah. and just let me jump in for yeah. just a second because the the whole beer garden thing i mean people are familiar with beer gardens now but that i mean that was a german invention mm-hmm. i mean that was um, invention maybe the wrong word but it was something that the german americans really brought to our culture um you know beer was really something they brought to our culture in in a way that nothing no one else ever had and a beer garden you know, where people could gather for of all ages and sit and drink beer was something as really as new young at the as time. Five. Exactly, <laughs> I know. But you you know, for anyone who's lived in St. Louis or even have visited St. Louis in the summertime, you know how along the river like that, how awful and humid it is. And yeah. that um, you know, when you had a place that was naturally air conditioned, when people weren't even really thinking about, you know, the possibility of air conditioning in those days. Um, when you had a place that was naturally air conditioned, why not? I mean, what a perfect place to go to, you know, drink beer or just to just to sit around and eat. And, you know, uh, people were already using caves as refrigerators, literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where you stored your butter, your cheese, if you had the opportunity. Well, in St. Louis, the settlers had that opportunity because of all the caves. There are so many caves. Right. And again, that's something that a lot of our modern listeners, readers, whatever, don't realize just how many caves there are underneath St. Louis. Yeah. And we're going to jump around and talk about some of them. Um, and But I want to start off with the first one. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is the, the cave that's underneath what is now Market Street, because no joke, two weeks ago, about 530 in the morning, I was stumbling down that sidewalk. It was a long, it was a long story. But, um, and you, you're telling me that on one part of that sidewalk actually caved in right, collapsed. And, and collapsed up, up on itself. And so does did that cave like have a name? Is that when we knew? It, it, it was, was just one of the brewery caves. Okay. Um, and it was it was shared by a couple of different caves, and they had used it at one time, both of them to, um, you know, to lager beer and yeah. to, to, for storage, really. And um, it just, it, it's, it's still there. It's yeah. right underneath Market Street. And luckily it hasn't collapsed in recent years, but the, the chance is always there. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's one of, you know, I can remember, you know, when it's, and we've all seen it on the news when sinkholes and stuff open in Florida and mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often in St. Louis. I mean, it does happen occasionally. Um, hasn't been that long ago. I remember seeing something on the news about a, a you know, cave entrance just opening up. And, but I mean, it could happen at any time. That particular one collapsed several times. That's so crazy because I, I used to live right down there, and so at right off Market Street, I've been down there a hundred times, and there's always construction going on down there too. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm so, I'm so surprised that you don't hear well, more and, about and, this. Well, and, and, and it may it could happen more than we know, and nobody really t- nobody makes a big deal out of yeah. it these days. But um, you know, it's it's the possibility is always there because the caves are 
they're not going anywhere. Yeah. So absolutely. And yeah, and I thought that the I thought the limp family tree was hard to nail down, but in these <laughs> caves, like not only the names and how many times they changed names, and then just the vast expansion of them was very very impressive. Uh, can we talk a little bit about? Is it Urig's cave? Is that how you yeah, pronounce it? Yeah, that was uh, one of the the really the first really big popular cave. Right. So Locus yeah. in Washington. I've been down there also a hundred times because it's similar, yeah. We can't even imagine what it looked like at that time. I mean, it was completely different. I mean, when you talk about how you know locust in washington and you talk about how that was a only a short carriage ride from downtown yeah. to us that is downtown that is 100 right? downtown and so but that was a little way from downtown and it was a you know a shady grove of trees you know that's so and weird there's a cave there these guys come up with the idea of putting you know they like everyone else they wanted to lager their beer somewhere but they came up with this idea of let's turn it into you know an, an indoor restaurant with air conditioning so to speak you know with speaking in modern terms mm-hmm. so they actually had carved um, 50 steps uh, down into the entrance of the cave that's how far down it was yeah um, into kind of a sinkhole type area and then turned that into a recreation area and then really built that thing up okay. and so they put the coliseum in and the coliseum was kind of the first you know, big auditorium in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I mentioned toward the end of that, I, I talked about how the, you know, the Keel Auditorium had really taken the place of, you know, the Coliseum and that kind of thing. Um, but it, it was, it was a, you know, it did some big business, but apparently it never made any money. Or at least, yeah. at least. Not enough to make a profit. Well, or, you know, we don't know where the money went. You know, there's mm. always that. You know, you just never know. Sketchy when you've accounting. Got, well, when you've got all this stuff going on there and yet no one can make any money, it makes you wonder what they're spending their money on. Yeah. You know, but regardless, um, it eventually, you know, it shut down too and they tore it down. And that was, uh, I've always found that interesting. There's a, a much longer piece in the book about all the things they found mm-hmm. underneath the Coliseum. Uh, because one of the things I didn't mention in the in this in the podcast, was they found that one portion of Yurik's cave had actually been turned into a speakeasy during Prohibition and had been abandoned. Oh. And when they tore down the Coliseum in the 50s, they found this speakeasy underground, and it still had all the stuff in it. I mean, the alcohol was gone, but it had like a bar in it, and it had um, a room that had, had like an Egyptian theme. I don't know if, you're, if mm. you knew this, but like in the 1920s, um, Egyptian themes were really hot in this country because it was right after the discovery of King Tut's tomb, okay. and that was all the rage. If you go out to Calvary Cemetery, and this is now we're jumping back an episode or two, but if you go out to Calvary Cemetery, you'll find all of these Egyptian themed tombs and monuments because it was all the rage at the time. All these discoveries were going on in the Valley of Kings, and it was really hot here in this country. And boy, am I on it. Boy, did I go off a cemetery, on a, on you, a you side always find your way back there, to cemeteries lately. Anyway, um, this 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 speakeasy had been done in an Egyptian theme, mm-hmm. and they found it was still intact so, underneath the Colosseum as they were tearing it down. So, did so. it still have the guy at the door who would yeah. flip the little thing ask, and say ask password? Ask for your password. Yeah, was which he, is always swordfish. Yeah, yeah was he still right. standing there, or yeah. was he long gone? I think he's long gone by then. Oh man, I would. I know that when I lived in New York, I know there were a couple of like, you know, quote unquote speakeasies yeah, they had there. Too, and I did know. get to go uh, to one when we did like a, uh, we went to go see the Great Gatsby and did like a little theme oh, yeah. night. And, yeah. and it was the whole thing. And it was, it I was a lot of fun. I would love to open one of those. Yeah. I think that would be the coolest thing where it's just a big door and you have to, you know, the password to get in and then right. the inside is all in that theme. It's going to, it'll come around, although I'm never opening a bar, but <laughs> yeah. it would be cool to have one. So, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say never. I'm never opening a store either. Not again. Right. Oh, whoops, we did that. So How yeah. about that? Yeah. So English right. Cave and Mammoth Cave are the same thing, 
Yes. And this is what's related to the year of misfortune. Yes. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. So there are too many caves. I know. So English cave is the is that was the other like famous cave. I mean, Urigs was you know Urigs, which turned into the Colosseum eventually, was was a big deal because they were kind of the original beer garden. But English Cave kind of came before that, and that's the one that was supposed to be haunted from the very beginning. That was the one that was like bad luck for everybody. Right. Um, and that was the story about the, you know, the Indian woman and, and the, the Pocahontas guy that died. Story. I know. It's, and, and, you know, like I said, I, I, that story may have been cooked up to sort of explain why the cave was cursed, mm-hmm. because by the time that story came along, you know, we'd already had a couple of unlucky owners. And yeah. I, I don't know what it is or, or why they did this, but um, Ezra English, who opened that cave originally with his partner, um, you know, had a pretty good thing going. I mean, they, they turned it into something really nice. And, you know, they're the one, they spent all that money on it. They started calling it Mammoth Cave to try to attract people. You know, they had a, you know, a, a, the sales swing and the hot air balloon rides and everything. But the, the bad luck came along was the year they decided to open it was 1849, which in St. Louis history, that's the year you don't want to do anything. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's, right. that's as bad as it gets. I mean, that was the year of misfortune that they used to call it. Okay. I mean, that was the cholera epidemics that killed thousands of people. You had the, Saint, the, you know, the great St. Louis fire that wiped out, you know, half of downtown and the riverfront. And nobody was interested in hot air balloon rides, you know. And that was the first kind of bad luck incident that took place there. And, you know, unfortunately for you know, everybody that followed, they, this is what they were stuck with. I mean, and not only that, but you had a cemetery next door. Again, not really great for property values. Uh, I'm thinking that is kind of going to depress your market. Yeah. Um, when you had all those people who had died. And then the guys who moved in after who started the mushroom farm, which I know we, 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 we hear that and we go, um, really? <laughs> you know, but yeah. that was a good, that was a good idea at the time. That was I a mean, lucrative business. You back had then? a, you had an underground spot, a wet spot, you know, underground that was perfect for growing mushrooms, which 75 cents a pound, that's not bad money yeah. at, in those days. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the late 1800s, that's a decent that's like amount of money. That's like $400. Yeah, I don't know about that, but it's, it's decent money. <laughs> right. Um, but they, you know, and then these guys have this great business plan. They got a great idea. They got plenty of money behind it. And every newspaper story that comes out to talk about their new business venture says, well, good luck because that place sucks. I mean, that's essentially Man. what everyone said. Yeah. And they, they're out of business in two years. Then the wine company moves in and they're out of business in less than a year. And I think everybody just kind of thought, well, that figures because, you know, that place was haunted by the, the ghosts of the Indians who had, you know, been trapped, starved to death in the cave and, you know, all this bad luck. So this stuff was, you know, going on in this cave during this time. And then they try to bring it back and, you know, nobody is interested. And I think that, you know, the run of it, is, the, the run of the story is that, you know, bad luck just kept happening in English yeah. Cave, you know, and uh, maybe because it was haunted, you know, or maybe it was just an unlucky spot, whatever. Uh, you know, it's gone now anyway. It's underneath Benton Park and it's full of water. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. Um, I've seen some, I've seen some weird, um, I've seen some weird um, film that was a video that was shot. Um, of that cave you could find it if you I used to be able to find it online yeah uh, but people had gotten in there 
and we're able to film, you know, this, the room's just completely filled with water and it's just, there's right. no way to ever reopen this cave. It's too bad. It'd be kind of cool, but I, there's just a way to do I it. I kind of wonder if like, you know, if you give it 20 years or something, if this, if, if someone will drain those and there'll be the new hipster little yeah. bars, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, underneath underground. I'd go. I'd yeah, go. of course. Yeah, yeah why not? Sure. Check it out. It'd be super. Yeah, it'd you be can cool. you pay like forty seven dollars for like a Manhattan or something. Yeah. Oh you know, yeah, or, absolutely, uh, absolutely. So yeah, it's just funny that they named it after Mammoth Cave because um, I don't know if you've ever been down there. One of these days we'll I do yeah. we'll do an episode on that. Maybe we should maybe we should plan a trip down to Mammoth Cave because I got to tell you it's pretty awesome. And yeah. It's um, I always like to call it the largest haunted place in the world because it's so many miles and miles and miles of subterranean passages and there's all kinds of ghost stories attached to it. Uh, but it reminded me when you said, you know, not only did they rip off the idea um, for English Cave, but it reminded me because they used to have a restaurant in the cave. Oh, wow. And so like halfway through your cave tour, which is like, you know, five miles long or something. Halfway Jeez. through your thing, you stopped in the snowball dining room to have, you know, like a um, buffet dinner. Um, of course, That's you know, amazing. I remember this was, and I went there with my parents in like 1980. I don't think they do that anymore. Yeah. But the cave is still, it's still very cool. I mean, it's still all there. And That's um, crazy. Yeah, it's it's a neat place. And can you, I don't, can you imagine trying to get anybody to walk five miles now for well, anything? Yeah. Well, I think you still have to if you yeah. want to tour this cave. But <laughs> I mean, it's it's like the largest cave system in the world, and it's a national park now. So I think they got rid of the snowball dining room. Uh, I'm pretty sure. So okay, so uh, so we talked about a lot of these caves. A lot of them are uh, well, they're still there, but they're definitely filled up with water yeah, for other things. But and really only developed as far as to be used for breweries, not not for tours or anything. That's that's what made like Cherokee Cave so much different mm-hmm. is because it's still around, you know, too. right? And it's still there. I mean, after the the Limps finished using it, I mean, completely used it. First, they used it for work, then they used it for play, and then it sat and empty then for so well, and it sat empty for so many years. Um, that's the one that I would have, I would have loved to have seen it in its heyday, you mm-hmm. know, in the late fifties when he had it turned into a show cave, I would have yeah. loved to have seen it like that. A show cave. Um, like and if it. you can find the picture of the museum he had built, which he, this guy's all over the place with native American stuff, but it was the late forties, but the, the actual museum entrance to the cave was built like a Pueblo. Okay. So, all right. You know, like completely wrong Native Americans from every part of the country, yep. kind of thing. Let's exploit it. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, but it it was built like a you know like an, an Adobe pueblo. And, but it I would have it would have been cool to see. You yeah. know, it would have been cool to take the tour because if you've ever gone to you know some of the caves like in Missouri, has got a lot of them, um, obviously. But further down, Merrimack Caverns is like the 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 worst tourist trap imaginable. Right. Well, like um, Jesse James and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, it's, or... it's, you know, but, but you, when you go and you see it under those conditions and you, you take it for what it is, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. It's fun to see that stuff. There's a lot of them down by Branson. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Silver Dollar City yeah. that's down there was actually originally was never meant to be an amusement park. That was meant to really just tour that cave that's there. And that was all they were planning on developing was the show cave because that was really hot at the time. And then slowly from there, Silver Dollar City grew around it. But it's still a good cave to tour. Yeah. If you like caves, it's still fun. Um, if you like a worse Six Flags, it's also great. Hey, I like Silver Dollar City. <laughs> I, I do, too. I like it. But... It's good food and stuff. Uh... Anyway, anyway, but <laughs> damn, we really get off on a tangent. But Cherokee Cave was, was developed in the 40s by this Lee Hess guy who mm-hmm. was a— 
um, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturer, which I mean, he had some patents on stuff. So he, he had some money. Yeah. And um, what's what's interesting about it is he bought that whole parcel of land because one of the things that it's interesting about caves is and you find out more about this when you get into like Kentucky, where they had these these really fierce rivalries over who owned what caves. When you bought the property, if the cave was underneath you, you owned it, even if it was only half the cave. Mm. Um, and in his case, he bought, you know, the, the Demino Mansion because the cave was on top of it that that portion of the cave that the doctor had had owned yeah um which was still the same cave the limb owned, but it ended at their property line if that makes any sense and so he owned that part of the cave and then began developing the whole thing because of course no one was using it for a brewery anymore and um you know there i've heard some stories about you know that he really started kind of losing his mind I mean, he became obsessed with this cave yeah. and sold off everything that he could to pay for it. So to he develop almost lost it. his fortune. Yeah, right, to, and to do all that. his money he sold off. And this is the story I've heard. And if it's, if it's incorrect, you know, if someone knows different, feel free to send us an email. But from my understanding, he sold off most of the contents of the Deminal Mansion, too, to try to pay for this cave. Yeah. Um, and try to develop it and turn it into a, a show cave that, you know, only lasted for. A decade and then you know it was gone because you know when the highway department comes in and says we're building an interstate you're out of luck yeah. i mean you don't there's no options there they just take your property so, so and that's it 55 has been causing problems for yeah, that long yeah huh? so it's not just traffic yeah. um it's always been problems um that whole area there like where the lint mansion is and where the demino mansion is that you know they're right there next to each other but all that land to you know behind them where the the interstate now runs that was all part of their property I mean, that was a, a big area there. And if you look at some of the old maps of, you know, that area showing like the Lint Brewery and everything, you could see how much property was there. And the highway just came in and just wiped it all out. And that the, the museum, the entrance to the cave sat right in the middle of Highway 55. And when I had the chance to go into the cave, because they saved the, the house, the house yeah. was eventually saved. Right. Like it's, a, it's, it's a museum was, now, right? right? Yeah. But if you're underground... You can actually go through the cave to where there used to be like a lake, which was the entrance to the cave. And there's a stone wall, like concrete block wall inside the cave. And right on the other side of that, you can actually hear cars going by. Oh, wow. Because it's it's that close yeah. to where the, the interstate is now. So it's a potential so. sinkhole coming soon. Yeah, well, it's it's it, it may not be because, you know, it's it is the, the, the interstate was built low. Mm -hmm. So the entrance to the cave really went up to kind of butted up to the highway ah, okay so they've learned some things low. so right. they did learn some things i don't think that one will ever collapse into the cave i suppose somebody could go through the you know <laughs> through the the earth and the wall there right. maybe but yeah uh imminent domain right yeah exactly exactly but i mean you know with all of the stuff that's been done at least the the demino mansion has been preserved you know like the lint mansion yeah. has but they've turned that back into uh, a historic site and um, is rumored to be haunted. Um, I'm not sure who all of the occupants are. Do you remember that, Lisa, who they they talked about haunting the house? We were there. We spent the night there once a few years ago, I guess. Yeah, it's and been while, it's but... been a while. And, and it was, you know, there was some there was some activity. Um, there was a piano that played by itself. It did play by itself. And yeah. that's what I that was my biggest takeaway from that trip. Yeah, I can't remember 
um, the history that they gave us, but it was a nice tour. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Did it play we, ragtime? No, no, it was actually no. just a couple of notes, but people were walking all throughout the house, and at that particular moment, Troy and I was, we were just in that adjacent room where it right. was all, right. you know, big, and yeah. so we could see big. into the room with the piano, but and we weren't no, in that right. room. Right, there was nobody in there it, was but no it was a big opening there. into the parlor, I mean, yeah. like through the big entry door right from one room to the next and they said that that happened sometimes but it never happened again yeah we 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 heard it and i think a couple other people heard it who were in that dining room area but yeah it's neat and it's it's beautiful what they've done with it it's it's an interesting place um take a chair with you because you can't sit on anything but the floor (laughs) that was the that was the one thing we spent the entire night there and we couldn't sit on any which i i get it don't get me wrong i get it i'm all for it we couldn't sit on we didn't we couldn't sit on any of the furniture so we just had to sit on the floor all night and that was (laughs) they don't even like for you to like touch the tables which and and again i get it i mean i get it i i do understand it uh, but it it did make for a long night of it's, it's the they were to cool. sit down. Those are the little new, they were great. Those yeah. are the nuances of ghost hunting and things you don't yeah. think about <laughs> that you don't think about right. in a historic spot like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh. oh, oh, okay. We're gonna take a quick break. Our pizza has arrived, so we'll be right back. Uh, I'm so excited. Um, so you you mentioned it a little bit in the monologue, but I I'd love to notice a little bit more about your time in some of these caves. And I know you eventually had to turn back, uh, but I just kind of want to know. Tell me a little bit more about what it was like. Yeah, that 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 was kind of like one of those dream come true moments. Paul Pointer, who owned the the Lint Mansion, um, had contacted me, and it had some other people who were going to go down into the the cave. He was going to take them on a tour. He wanted to know if I wanted to go. And so I went with them because, I mean, it was something I always wanted to see and never thought I'd ever get to. I mean, I never counted on ever seeing it. And um, so we, we actually toured the the brewery buildings that are kind of down to, if you're standing facing the brewery from the Limp Mansion down to the right where the big tower is yeah. that says Limp on it, yep. we actually went up to the top of that tower. Um, we're on the tower and, and some of the other buildings there. and went. So we did a lot of other stuff before we went down into the caves. But... Um, it was a, a really, really cool experience. Um, I've probably got somewhere in my files, I've probably got a hundred photos that I took that night in the cave of all different aspects of it. And there, was, there are some in, in Suicide and Spirits. If, yeah, if I did. I did pictures. put some of them in, into the book. Um, some of the ones that would turn out better. It was, it was so humid and foggy down there that a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the photos are, are pretty hazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was very cool. And it was, you know, going through the, the brewery itself was really cool. But then into the actual caves and you saw where the theater was and the, you know, the swimming pool, which wasn't really a swimming pool because it was only a couple of feet deep. Right. And I'm not sure how true that story is, but that's always been the story that it was, uh, you know, that it was a swimming pool or some kind of wading pool. I don't know. It could, I could see where it'd be a wading pool, but not, not, not a swimming like pool. Like how we always get to one of the largest swimming pools in well, the world. Well, I know there's the always state. one. Yeah, there's always one in <laughs> one of our stories, aren't yeah. there? I know. Yeah. So, but when we went into like the, you know, the the parts of the cave that had been developed as Cherokee Cave. I mean, you could if you've ever been to like, you know, Merrimack Caverns or somewhere, you've seen the carved steps and the railings and all that stuff, except here was the stuff that had been left there for like 50 years yeah. never touched you know electrical boxes where the lights are and all that kind of stuff. it was and pretty cool the it was motor just, on the yeah it was just belt. really neat yeah. to see all that stuff but um one of the things i had always wanted to see was i always wanted to see the tunnel that the limps had used to get from the house to the cave to the brewery yeah. and so we were actually going that direction we were heading down that way but the further along we got 
uh, the, the worse the air got. There are a lot of gases and stuff, which is one of the things that's always, I mean, there's been talk about maybe trying to reopen that cave someday, but I don't, I don't know how it would ever be done. It would cost a fortune really to reopen it. But um, the, the further we got toward where the, the limp mansion was in the cave, the worse the air got. And then so after a while, we couldn't even get like a flame to burn. There was no yeah, oxygen. The canary so, started freaking exactly, out. Yeah. Exactly. So we had to, we had to give it up, but, um, but wow. it was, it was, it's a really, it's a really cool, it's a really spooky spot, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, and there, there were the ghost stories that I've mentioned that were mostly attached to the brewery itself. Um, so, I mean, can I say the cave is haunted? Yes. And like I said in my, you know, in the, in the monologue, you know, it's haunted by history and, and maybe haunted by ghosts, too. I didn't see any, but other people have had their own experiences and their own reports of strange things going on. And, um, you know, I, I think there's probably something to it. I, I really do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, it's a it's a cool spot. And I, I doubt I'll probably ever get to see it again. Uh, but I'm glad I at least got to see it once yeah. uh, once in my lifetime if i so. ever make millions for no reason i will drain that thing because i as we're going to talk about next episode i wouldn't be surprised if you just see a really really sad band just pacing, i know i know pacing throughout that i agree and, and we will get to that uh next time all right well sounds good well i guess we better wrap this up so if you uh if you enjoy the podcast please leave us a review on itunes um, no matter where you listen, whether you listen online at the AmericanHauntedsPodcast.com website or on SoundCloud or, or wherever, uh, leave us a review on iTunes only because it makes it a lot easier for people to find us. Um, I get a lot of emails from people who say, well, I see a post about the website, but how do I find it? Um, but that's that's the way to find it. You can go to, to iTunes and search for American Hauntings Podcast. You can tell that to your friends who haven't been able to find this because if you're listening to this and you, ha- you have already found it, but f- tell someone else how to find it. But leave us a review, and it makes it a lot easier for everyone to find us. So anyway, for, uh, for me, uh, I'll sign off for this time, and we'll be back with more Limp Stories uh, next time around. Yeah, and we are almost up to 155-star reviews, which oh, is just something I want for my ego, So <laughs> to be honest. So thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go eat pizza. Sounds good to me. All right. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com where we also have some links to Troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. Find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author Page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and edited by me, Cody Beckham. Some of the music in this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brockus at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, Illinois.